June the 28th, 2021, Ethiopia's federal government declared a ceasefire in the country's Tigray region. The capital of Tigray, Mekele, sprang to life as thousands of residents flooded the streets chanting and dancing, some draped in Tigrayan flags. The announcement was supposed to end eight months of war, which has killed at least 7,500 people in 232 recorded massacres. Hundreds of thousands more have been forced to flee their homes in the fighting between government troops, their allies, and Tigrayan rebels. But shortly after the declaration of a ceasefire, the Tigray rebels declared they would not stop fighting until all federal troops were removed from the region. Some leaders even threatened to move into neighboring regions. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm Taylor Heyman, and this week we're looking at the origins of the Tigray War and whether the ceasefire can be translated into a lasting peace. Before we start, please make sure to subscribe to Beyond the Headlines to get the latest episodes. So how did Ethiopia get into this mess? In November 2020, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed declared the last red line had been crossed in the Tigray region, claiming the Tigrayan Defence Forces had attacked a federal military base. But Tigrayans and experts argue the start of the conflict was far from this clear cut. To understand it, we need to explore Ethiopia's complex political landscape. Before widespread protests that ended up bringing Abiy Ahmed to power, Ethiopia operated under a system of ethnic federalism, where the country was split into nine ethnic-based regional states and two federally administered city-states. The Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, dominated Ethiopian politics during this time and remains one of the main supporters of ethnic federalism. One of Abiy Ahmed's first post-election actions in 2018 was reducing the group's influence by stripping the TPLF of many federal powers. William Davison, a senior analyst on Ethiopia at International Crisis Group, says this did not go down well. That led to a lot of political bitterness between Tigray elites, TPLF elites and other Ethiopian political elites, including the Prime Minister. They strengthened their position in their regional base, um, in control of Tigray regional government. And then they, they sat out Prosperity Party when it was created. All other regional ruling parties merged into Prosperity Party. Tigray did not. That made them an opposition party in the federal parliament, the only regional state run by an opposition entity. When Abiy Ahmed delayed national elections in June 2020 over fears of spreading coronavirus, the Tigray region decided to forge ahead with the polls, which the TPLF won convincingly. The federal government enacted a blockade against the region, eventually invading to put down the TPLF leadership, which it claimed was not legitimately elected. When the military operation started, Abiy Ahmed said the fighting would be over in a matter of weeks. And three weeks later, federal troops declared a victory when they took over the Tigrayan capital, Mekele. But the reality was an entrenched guerrilla conflict against supporters of the TPLF, loosely grouped into the Tigray Defence Forces. Since then, troops from neighbouring Eritrea and those from the Ethiopian region of Anhara have also joined the fray on the side of the Ethiopian government. The devastation in the region was difficult to report on. A communications blackout started with the war and was in place for six weeks blocking phone lines, internet access and mobile networks. There are still issues with connections today. Travelling to the region was also restricted and journalists and aid organisations had great difficulty accessing the area. Journalist Samuel Getachew visited twice during the conflict. He describes the impact of the war on civilians. 
young people that are not, no longer going to school and uh, surviving on very little uh, in terms of food and education that's inter- interrupted. And again, the usual, uh, again, I shouldn't say the usual in discount what has happened, but there are many, many sexual harassment and violence that has happened. And I think it will take all of us at least a century to get through all of them and investigate what happened. I'm obviously talking about either the government or the UN. And it's the experiences we've been told that they have shared with us is very, very touching and very, uh, again, humbling because, I mean, it's it's happening in 2021 and it's really, really a sad and unfortunate uh, thing that has happened in terms of uh, women that have become victims to this ongoing violence. Samuel says one particular incident stuck with him when he met a woman who'd worked abroad for years to save for her family, only to have the proceeds looted during the war. There's this young lady who came from Qatar, I believe, uh, who had just come and had invested all her resources, building and buying um, furniture for her house, for her kids. Uh, once the violence started, she just ran away with her kid who who has, I believe, who has cancer. and. Uh, when because she did not want to be um, you know sexually uh, exploited uh, but when she came back everything she's worked for for three years uh, was gone everything was stolen uh, she had nothing and she had young kids and she had to start all over again as reports from the ground trickled in people from the war-torn region made their way into neighboring Sudan accounts of massacres rapes and machete attacks in Tigray were reported by residents of the refugee camps. Over 60,000 refugees have found their way into Sudan, but the fight for survival wasn't over yet. Some were forced to re-enter Tigray to find food for their families as stocks in refugee camps were running low. A ceasefire may encourage them to return, but Ethiopia has said the ceasefire is to aid a battle against another foe, famine. On the 10th of June, the UN declared a famine in the Tigray region. They warned that 350,000 people, including 30,000 children, were already severely malnourished and at risk of death. William says essential aid shipments were unable to reach the areas where they were needed most. The humanitarian situation has just got worse and worse. Um, that is particularly the case uh, for people in rural areas where the insurgency is based um, and where it's hardest and most dangerous. Um, for the humanitarian actors um, to get aid into, um, and that's partly because Eritrean soldiers and Ethiopian soldiers man the checkpoints and have been blocking um, humanitarian convoys from, from getting into those areas, or, or at least just making it clear that that's um, not, not, ex- not acceptable. So it's in those large rural rebel-held areas where the famine conditions are supposed to be the most serious. This is Brian Lander, Deputy Director of the World Food Programme's Emergency Division. It's very, very worrying that uh, there are indications that we have the, the worst uh, phase, phase five, uh, affecting 353,000 people in Tigray. Uh, those, that number is expected to rise beyond 400,000 over the next few months if we don't get the access that we need to reach, reach those areas. So overall, the situation is extremely worrying. We need unimpeded access to those areas that we have not been able to reach to, uh, to this point. And we have 
faced severe constraints. Uh, we are stopped by armed actors from reaching certain areas. Uh, so that has to open up, that has to be facilitated. Uh, in order to do so, in our mind, uh, there should be a ceasefire. I think we want to see a, a halt to the fighting that is going to certainly facilitate the work that we do on the ground and, and the work of our partners um, in getting to those communities. Ethiopia is sadly no stranger to famine. Despite huge economic progress in the last few years, the vast majority of Ethiopian farmers still live harvest to harvest. But this time, like the devastating famines of the 1980s that inspired global fundraising efforts like Band-Aid and Live Aid, the famine is largely man-made. Many older Ethiopians are still scarred by the period, when as many as 1.2 million people died due to brutal political policies. Civil war, elongated by a military dictatorship, and compounded by shortfalls of rain, caused poor harvest in the early 1980s. As with today's conflict in Tigray, aid agencies were blocked from entering some areas. The declaration of famine could well have been a strong influence on the Ahmed administration to halt hostilities. But Samuel says the ceasefire could be too little, too late. When we went to uh, many parts of Tigray, um, the farmers were telling us that they were prevented from farming. They couldn't farm. It was sometimes too violent for them to farm. Uh, sometimes they were prevented. They couldn't access. Their livestock were stolen. So this is, I think, um, a belated uh, return to normal for them because I believe it's, uh, it's too little too late. Uh, many of them have literally uh, given up. Um, and I hope this ceasefire would be able to save lives. Uh, but according to the UN, uh, when 91% of the population are facing famine, it's really difficult to uh, save them at, at this point unless there is a very large effort to serve them, not just by Ethiopia or Ethiopians, but by international uh, donors and uh, partners. The war has also impacted foreign investment in Ethiopia, with businesses moving out of Mekele. There is so much pressure to solve what's happening in Tigray. Uh, it's not just um, you know, taking so much resources from uh, the government. It's also uh, foreign investors that are being really careful about investing in Ethiopia. Uh, the textiles of uh, Bangladesh who invested in Makali have already left. Um, and there are violence, as I mentioned, in other parts. Uh, including uh, the flower growers from uh, European nations, are concerned. I mean, you just have to be concerned uh, because even for someone like myself, um, there are many parts of the country that I can't travel in. So that becomes a real uh, issue for, for everyone. So given the external pressures to make peace and the ghoul of famine, how realistic is the ceasefire? Ethiopia's government has said the cessation in fighting will last until the end of planting season, usually September. Another influence on the decision to declare the unilateral ceasefire was large territory gains made by Tigrayan forces in the last few weeks. Some in their ranks have vowed to keep fighting until all federal, Eritrean and Amhara regional troops are gone from Tigray. Others have said they will push further into other regions to capture more territory. Here is Getachew Reda, spokesperson for the Tigray Liberation Front. Our forces took over Magadan, and uh, the legislative elected government of Tigray is officially back in the capital. 
the forces are firmly in control of Mughala and people are uh, expressing their uh, joy and happiness on the liberation, on the liberation of Mughala. We have to be sure that enemy, whether from Eritrean side or Amhara side or from Addis Ababa, doesn't have the capabilities to threaten the safety and security of our people anymore. So we'll do what it takes to make sure that those enemies who've been pillaging our village, who've been ransacking our, our uh, private and public properties, destroying infrastructure, do not have the means and the wherewithal to come back and hold our people again. And we'll do whatever it takes to see to it that our people remain safe uh, and secure from any potential attack from this enemy. So if going to Amhara is what it takes, we'll do it. If going to Eritrea is what it takes, we'll do it. Uh, until every square inch of Tigray is liberated from the enemy, our offensive will continue. In the week before the ceasefire was announced, a bomb hit a market town northwest of Mekele, killing dozens. Then, three days before the ceasefire, the bodies of three Médecins Sans Frontières aid workers were found dead. Although unclear who was directly responsible, the US State Department said that ultimately the Ethiopian government bears full responsibility for ensuring the safety of humanitarian workers. Ali Vergi is a senior advisor to the US Institute of Peace's Africa program. He has just returned from two months in the country covering the recent elections that did not include Tigray. I think it came as a surprise just a week ago there were still airstrikes happening. So it's a very sudden reversal of direction in a very short period of time. And clearly the offensive by the Tigrayan forces had a lot to do with the suddenness of the announcement and of the change of direction. But I also think we need to see how much the ceasefire actually endures. One, because it's unilateral. We don't know if it includes the foreign forces from Eritrea. We don't know if it includes the Amhara regional forces. We also don't know if the Tigrayan side will honor the ceasefire. And secondly, there are a lot of details in ceasefires that matter in terms of the resupply of troops and self-defense exemptions and many different provisions that we don't know if they are going to be spelled out or if uh, there will still be fighting or violence uh, because some of these details haven't been announced or haven't been uh, thought about. Ali said one stumbling block to the process may be the wide support for Ethiopian action against the TPLF. Before Abiy Ahmed's formation of the Prosperity Party in 2019, he was chairman of the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, a coalition of ethnic factions including the TPLF. For around three decades, the TPLF was the dominant military and political force in Ethiopia, something that the rest of the country saw as unfair as Tigrayans make up only 6% of the country's population. But opposition was scarce as political and press freedoms were stifled. When Abiy Ahmed came to power, his freeing of thousands of political prisoners and expansion of a free press were a huge departure from the previous policies. But Ali says, for a ceasefire to work, the TPLF and Abiy Ahmed's government must find common ground. In the longer term, There needs to be a discussion that goes beyond the the military questions because this is not primarily a military dispute. It's a political dispute. Uh, It's a dispute that has had some very ugly episodes and incidents, but it isn't one that 
is primarily about security arrangements. It's about power, it's about control, it's about a vision for uh, the future of uh, the country and of the region. And it will require both sides to depart from the rhetoric that they have been using, the very uncompromising language and messaging that they have employed over the last uh, six or seven months, and really be willing to, to sit down and see if they can work out a, a solution. But I think it's going to be very difficult for them to do that. Although a ceasefire has been declared by Ethiopia, if we are to see an end to this war, it will have to involve political discourse and diplomacy. The time before the end of the planting season will hopefully bring reprieve to those facing famine, with aid workers able to access the most vulnerable without threat to their lives. But it also gives the military factions involved some breathing space to assess their situation and their demands. Some of the actions taken by both sides during the life of the conflict will be difficult to reverse but may need to be to achieve peace. William explains one such obstacle. But there are some serious political obstacles. For example, Ethiopia's federal parliament only last month or just designated the TPLF as a terrorist organisation. Um, now, the armed resistance in Tigray is you know, somewhat broader than the TPLF, but essentially it is fighting for the return of the TPLF government's power. Um, but seeing as the federal government has classified the TPLF as a terrorist organization, obviously that is a major uh, obstacle to negotiations and the return of the TPLF government to power. So things are changing very rapidly. They're very volatile, unpredictable, but you know, we can see some, you know, some critical uh, political hurdles that need to be overcome to get this back on anything like a sort of peaceful path. Another obstacle is support for the war in the rest of Ethiopia. Abiy Ahmed, who won the Nobel Prize in 2019 for his efforts to democratise Ethiopia and end the war with neighbouring Eritrea, is still very popular. But it's worth keeping in mind that even if, from the outside in particular, there's a narrative that Abiy Ahmed has prosecuted this war and overseen atrocities and had his forces uh, bring in the Eritrean forces and so on, within the country he remains very popular and that's not going to go away. That popularity is in part because of the decision to continue the war with the, the TPLF. Um, I think that isn't necessarily damaged by the ceasefire. And so I think in the long term, um, or let me say in the more immediate term, um, Abiy Ahmed's agenda doesn't really change. Uh, he has this mandate or will have this mandate to, to lead as he sees it. Um, and I think he will continue to do so. But of course, in the, in the slightly longer term, these challenges of subnational grievance, whether in Tigray or in other parts of the country, won't go away either. And that remains a, a very significant challenge for him to address um, if through the federal government's policies and the way in which uh, the state is governed and organised. Although Abiy Ahmed has been involved in many local, national and international peace initiatives, peace in Tigray is still very precarious. The lives of one million Tigrayans rest on this ceasefire, but its fate is still far from certain. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Taylor Heyman. Thanks this week to Samuel Getachew, William Davison and Ali Vergi. This week's episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Beyond the Headlines on your favourite podcasting app.